Hey there, welcome to Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, that's me, and this is a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative types about how they do their thing and how they keep it going through all the ups and downs. And this week, my guest is an author, Michael Callahan. He's based in Philadelphia. He happened to be out here in Los Angeles. We have a couple mutual friends, and he has a new novel out called The Night She Won Miss America. And those of you who, who know me know I, lo- I break for any pageant, anything. So it's a really fun uh, summer read, and it's based on something that actually happened, although he fictionalized it, and we get to all of that and a lot more in the, in the podcast. Um, he's also written for magazines like Marie Claire and The New York Times, Hollywood Reporter, uh, Elle, Town & Country, and Vanity Fair. He's a regular contributor to Vanny, Vanity Fair, so I have to learn what that's all about. I had to ask him. But before we get into the interview, I want to encourage you to check out DennisAnyone.net. That's the website that goes with the podcast. I have all the episodes archived there. You can also check out photos that go with some of the podcasts. Like last week, I took a picture of the plastic cake that John Waters sent Jeffrey Schwartz for his wedding gift, and you can see it in all its delicious splendor. Um, I'd also like to encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Hensley Dennis. Uh, Like the Dennis Anyone Facebook page. And I also want to plug my Patreon club. Once a month, I post an episode that's just for the Patreon members. You can get in for as low as a dollar a month, and there's rewards if you go for for more than that, at like $5 and $10, uh, different little bonuses. And uh, you get a special episode every month that's all new material. And I really, really appreciate it. So, oh, one other plug. If you're in L.A., The Mismatch Game, the show that I host and uh, produce for the Gay and Lesbian Center... Um, is coming back on Friday, July 21st at 8 p.m. and Sunday, July 23rd at 7 p.m. And you can learn a lot about that at lagaycenter.org. So, yeah, I hope you can come if you're in town. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and that's all the plugs. Let's get to the interview. Here is Michael Callahan. Hey there, I'm coming to you from the very glamorous Sunset Tower Hotel. I am here with today's guest, author Michael Callahan. He's author of the new book, The Night She Won Miss America, a fun novel. Thank you. And you love this hotel, right? I, I do love this hotel. I try to always stay at this hotel anytime I come to L.A. Why do you love it so much? Because it's old and glamorous, and I'm old and not so glamorous, but um, yeah, I just feel like it gives you that sort of punch of Gable and Lombard and Ava Gardner and Frank Sinatra having a drink here, and I love the vibe of it. Yeah, totally. I feel weird bringing out my Apple products in it, because it feels like it ruins the... <laughs> it feels like we're kind of in period, except for our gadgets. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Have you stayed here a lot? I have. I have. I started staying here, I guess, probably 10 years ago, 11 years ago. And um, and then I, I stayed at a bunch of other places. I've stayed at the Mondrian and all those right. kind of places. But they're too slickster for me. This is more me. This is more your speed. Yeah. I don't like the upside down sign at the standard. You know how yeah. the sign is upside down? Oh. I think it's so like, oh, give us a break. <laughs> and the standard to me is just a glorified hojos with a girl sitting in a fish tank. I just don't get it. <laughs> exactly. Although I do like that they're open on Christmas Day. So I've had a number of Christmas breakfasts with friends oh, at that. Nice. At the... At the um, cafe there and nobody's there it's like our own little christmas heaven that's nice yeah so uh your book the night she won miss america it's it's just out recently yes april Mm -hmm. april fun summer read i'm about halfway through it i love your voice i love the writing it's so pleasurable to read and fun and and it has nuance and i just i think it's terrific thank you so it's inspired by a true story yes so break that down So in 1937, I mean, Miss America started in 1921. Right. And in 1937, um, Miss New Jersey was 17 years old. Her name was Betty Cooper. And she had actually won the title um, on a dare. She entered a a contest in an amusement park. And her girlfriend said, oh, you should enter. And she was like, okay. Right. And so then she ends up Miss New Jersey and comes to Atlantic City. Back in those days, the pageant assigned each girl who was competing an escort. I know, I read that, and I thought, that sounds like you're asking for trouble. Yes, they were asking for trouble. Remember, it's the height of the Depression. Right. And the the pageant had no money, and so they had free labor. I mean, the girls got dates, the boys got pretty dates, and the boys squired the girls around, spent money on them, and drove them. Right. And so to the pageant, this was a win-win for Right, exactly. You don't have to hire a driver. Yeah. You don't have to, you know. Exactly, exactly. So Betty's, uh, Betty Cooper's escort was named Louis Off, and his family owned... 
um, the Brighton Hotel and Brighton okay. Farms, which provided the flowers to all of the of, of the hotels in, in in Atlantic City. And um, Lou was 22 and sort of a jerk, and uh, drove a, a Buick maroon convertible and. They fall, you know, madly for each other. Actually, Betty fell more for Lou than Lou fell for Betty. Right. So, I mean, she's 17. Right. So, the day of the pageant, they're sitting in a diner in Summers Point, New Jersey. And he casually says to her, well, what are you going to do if you win? And she says, oh, I'm not going to win. He says, well, just so you know, if you do win, like, I'm out. Because I don't want to be Miss America's boyfriend. And she says, oh, don't worry, I'm not going to win. Well, of course she does win. Right. And, and at this point, they'd known each other a week. A week, right. Yeah. You know? And uh, the, she wins, and she's thrilled. I mean, she's 17. Right. And, and it's a big deal. Yes. And the bulbs and the guys in the fedoras, honey, give us a quote, you know, that right. kind of thing. Uh, but Lou kept his word, and that night at the Coronation Ball, which was used to be held on Steel Pier, he broke up with her. He said, yeah, good luck. Yeah, I know. And she was devastated. And she went back to her hotel room with her parents and basically called Lou in the middle of the night and said, I can't live without you. And he came in, snuck into the hotel, and said to her, do you want me to get you out of this? And she said, yeah, I do. So he wrapped her in a blanket. He had a couple friends with him. They snuck down the back stairs, threw her in a boat, and took off. Wow. And the next day, she was supposed to show up at um, the Miss America press conference. It doesn't show. So they think she's been kidnapped. So it goes out on the wire, and Walter Winchell picks up the story, and he somehow comes to the conclusion that they've eloped, and it's just crazy. Uh, but it's all over very, very soon. Right. And that night, Lou drives Betty home. Betty's parents cave and say, look, she just didn't want to be Miss America. The Miss America people are furious. They Yeah, bas- as you would. Yes, they basically threaten all sorts of malfeasance if she doesn't hold up her end of the bargain. She makes a few limited appearances during the year and then disappears and never talks about this again. She and Lou have a you know very fizzly summer romance that ends very quickly. And right. She marries somebody else and basically vanishes. And in the years since, when reporters have tracked her down to tell the story, she always says the same thing, which is, there's no Miss America here, which is, of course, how my book opens. Right. And uh, she is still alive. She's still alive? She is 97 years old. Wow. Yes. How did you first hear about this story? I began covering Miss America as what we used to then call cover reporter uh, yeah. back in the 80s, and I moved to Atlantic City worked in a magazine there and one of my first assignments was to cover Miss America and I knew about it what anybody knew about it right just you know it was this annual pageant and that was it and um and also that Pennsylvania never won right uh, so yeah try being from Arizona yeah exactly although Arizona has won yeah um but the um so I went to the pageant and I was rolling my eyes through it and I went to a rehearsal and all the girls left and it was just me and if you've ever been to Atlantic City, where they have the pageant and convention hall, it's this cavernous train shed kind of, you know, convention center, and uh, I'm looking at the runway, and I'm like, well, I'm doing it. So I walked down the runway by myself. You did. You got a chance to do it. I did. Because it's a bucket list thing, right? Right, exactly. So, and this is before I'm out, believe it or not. So, (laughs) So I'm walking down this runway, and when I get to the end of the runway, and I'm looking at all these empty seats, it sort of hits me what it must be like to win this thing. Yeah. The head rush of a lifetime you must get. Yeah. So, I really got interested in it as a sort of a weird cultural American institution. Yes. And started to investigate it and write stories about it, and wrote for a bunch of different magazines over the years, and one of the stories I unearthed was the story of Betty Cooper, the Miss America who ran away the night she won. Right. So that's how it all happened. And I, I guess I always had it in the back of my head that this would be a good story to turn into fiction if I right. ever wrote fiction. And then you fast forward 25 years and here we are. Right. So um, what kind of liberties did you take with, what did you, what were the things that you kind of kept and what were the things that you felt like you wanted to go in a different way? Well, the basic premise of, you know, what happens when you take off the night you win is, yeah. is sort of the axis of the book, obviously. But in my case, obviously the the real story is over the next day, and in my case, it's not. Um, in my case, you know, it turns into this sort of soapy caper that yeah. goes up from New York to Newport, Rhode Island, and, um, you know, all sorts of things. There's a reporter from the press of Atlantic City who's secretly in love with her, who's on their trail, and then her, the escort, whose name is Griff, and his mother is a big socialite in town. Right. And she's on their trail, and it all, you know, it, it, it ends up very, you know, 
cataclysmic. Well, Griff is very cute and sexy. Yes, Griff it's is. a lot. Who yeah. can resist? Who could resist? When you're writing, do you think ever think of actors that would be them in the movie, or do you just kind of visualize? Well, them Well, yeah, that that's way? the funny thing is when I was um, when I was wanted to describe Griff, and then I I went on and did a bunch of googling of, of male marquee movie stars of the 1940s, and I you know was looking at all these pictures, and I came across a picture of an actor named Guy Madison, mm. who I'd never heard of, and who made, like, five movies. Uh, but it's funny, when I mentioned my mother, who's 86, and she knew him right away, she was like, oh, Guy Madison. And I was like, okay, okay this is I'm it. something. Because I needed somebody who would be that good-looking. I mean, this right. guy, if you look at a picture of him, it's just ridiculous. All right, we'll Google how good looking, this is over. How good-looking Guy Madison was. But, yeah. So I thought, that's what I needed. I needed that sort of electric moment where if you are a 19-year-old girl like my Betty Welch is from Delaware. Right. And she shows up, and she's matched with this guy who's just drop-dead, Brad Pitt-level yeah. gorgeous, that it would then throw her enough right. to make the decisions that she would make. Because right. anybody who has dated somebody that good-looking, and at some point in your life, you, you end up on a date with somebody who is just so radically much better looking than you are. Yeah. And it, you never forget it because in your head, you're just saying over and over, I can't believe how good looking this person is and right. why am I here? So I just, I needed that sort of note right. in order to explain why she would make the decisions that she made. Excellent. Um, why Delaware? I wanted to pick a state that was unlikely to win Miss America. Delaware right. has, uh, to my knowledge, never even placed in the top ten in Miss America. Wow. So I feel like it, there needed to be that element of surprise. It yeah. wouldn't have been... And, and the pageant girls from the southern states and California are more savvy even yeah. than they were. There's they a whole were, industry yeah. built up around... Exactly. Canadian, as so. you can get from Miss Alabama, yeah. who's represented in here, that, that, you know, there's, that they were the real pageant, what we think yeah. of the pageant girls. Right. But, but even today, when you if you covered Miss America this year and you went in and interviewed the girls from Vermont and yeah. New Hampshire and who never win, who never come close to winning, because yeah. they're just yokel farm girls. They right. have no clue as to how this all really works. Yeah, their, their state pageant was held in a gym Exactly, yeah. and it was them and five other girls, right. you know what I mean, to, to win the state title. Yeah. Whereas if you want to win Miss Texas, boy, that, that is Darwinian. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I mean, that's like American Idol yeah. level, you know, competition. Did America invent the beauty pageant as we know it? Because I've traveled to other countries where Miss Universe is huge. Right. Much bigger than it is here. Right. But where did they start? Yeah, the bathing beauty contest actually goes back into the ancient Egyptians. You know what I mean? Like, the concept of picking the most beautiful girl in the tribe is actually not an American in, in right. institution. But sort of um, branding it yeah. as that, and the sash, and the crown, and that kind of thing, is, is definitely an American invention. Yeah. I mean, and, and Miss America was invented like many things of this ilk, very much by accident. You know, a bunch of PR guys needed a way to get people to come to Atlantic City after Labor Day, after the season was over, to extend the season. And they said, we'll have a bathing beauty contest. And we'll just... They pulled a bunch of random girls yeah. know, together and said, here, we're going to call it the American Bathing Beauty Contest. And Margaret Gorman, who was the very first Miss America in 1921, uh, learned she was Miss Washington, D.C., uh, a bunch of newspaper men, she had written an essay to get in. And they picked her, and then to track her down, they found her. And she, when they found her, she was on her stomach in the dirt playing marbles. <laughs> and they said, you're a Miss Mahino. You know, I mean, come, come with us. Yes, and she dusted herself off. And put on a go. sash. Exactly. And there you go. There now, you you've go. interviewed a number of Miss Americas. I have. Was there one that was kind of your favorite? That you just really loved? Uh, yeah. I would say B.B. Shop, who really helped me out with the book, because she's the, um, aside from Betty Cooper, yeah. she's the oldest living Miss America. B.B. Uh, Shop won in 1948. Wow. And my book's set in 1949, so this was invaluable to me. But I had met B.B. years ago, you know, at various pageants, and, yeah. and had interviewed her for, let's say, five or ten minutes at a time. And then for this book, she helped me. I interviewed her a much lengthier period, but... She's a great old broad, you know yeah. what I mean? She's just a great... She's somebody you want to go have a bourbon with, you know? Right. And she's, uh, and she's very protective of it and everything, and as you would expect. But she's just... She's very self-effacing and funny and sort of gets the absurdity of it, but right. also the nostalgia and, and the meaning of it. And it know? probably changed her life in a big way. Of course it did. I mean, for her. I mean, she was just, you know, this nobody girl and... Um, if you look at old pictures of her, I mean, her dresses were awful. 
but <laughs> uh, which I kid her about, but you know, she yeah. I mean, it's a very ethereal experience to be Miss America. Yeah. It's a very odd sorority to be part of, um, especially today. You know, but well, every year you're like. Is it going to be on? Yeah. Or it's on, like, you know, the Nashville channel, <laughs> or you don't know where it's going to be. It leaves Atlantic City. Yes. I love to watch pageants. Yeah. I find them so fun. Right. Uh, but you, it always feels like it's on its last legs. How's the health of the Miss America pageant at press time at that, this moment? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I think it is stabilized. Okay. Um, certainly, I, well, I mean, I, I covered it in the early part of the aughts. It was really reeling. And that's when it left, and that's when it was on CMT and the Learning Channel. Right. It was just awful. (laughs) Just just all moved to January. It was just horrific. They went, they burned through, I don't know, four CEOs in three years. And it was just a a terrible time. And now um, they have Sam Haskell's the CEO, and he's much more, he's much more steady. And he's he's sort of right at the ship. It will never be what it used to be. And you have to remember that in 1960... Like, 88 million people watched Miss America that year. That's more than the Super Bowl. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's amazing. To think of that many people watching something today, together, in real time. Yeah. Just doesn't happen. And it was a real cultural institution, and that was sort of the high watermark for Miss America. But I also don't think that there are many things that survive 100 years in American culture. No. And so you got to give her some props for sort of hanging in there. We don't want her to go away. No. We really don't. No. Um, I love the talents. Yes. What are, what's the weirdest talent you've seen? And can you back this up? I feel like the marimba is something that a girl can learn quick if she doesn't have anything else and do on Miss America. That could be wrong about the marimba. But whenever they come out with a marimba, I'm like, she didn't know how to do this six months No, you're absolutely right about the marimba. In fact, Debbie Turner, who won Miss America, yeah. I believe 1991... I have that right? Nine, in the early 90s, yeah. Debbie Turner became a veterinarian and won Miss America playing the Flight of the Bumblebee on yes, the Marimba. Yes, I remember it. And, and I remember thinking she didn't know how to do that And she didn't. Ago. And she said in her interview she had no talent and <laughs> she needed the scholarship money if she wanted to go to vet school. And so she went to a music teacher and said, what's the quickest thing I can learn in six months? And I was said, so right about this. Absolutely I was more point. right than I ever knew. Dennis, as always, you're completely <laughs> on point. I nailed it. Yeah, I do feel like that. What's the weirdest talent you've seen? I feel like in one of my local pageants in Arizona, somebody packed a suitcase as their talent. Like, well, showed how to pack a suitcase. I mean, if you remember two years ago, the year Betty Cantrell won, I mean, there was a top ten finalist and she came out and gave a, a monologue about what it was like to be a nurse. Yeah. Which was, you know, controversial. And, of course, all the nurses in America were like, eh, it's beautiful. And I said, that's not a talent. Yeah. That's like coming out and talking about your job is not a talent. <laughs> so I'm so glad she didn't win. That would have really ticked yeah, me off. Yeah, she doesn't want to go around the country talking about... And yeah. also, that's just not fair to yeah. somebody who has been playing Chopin since they were five. You right. know what I mean? It's just like, if you're if you're going to enter this thing, then you've got to go... you got to bring it. you got to bring it. I love it. a baton. Uh-huh. Any kind of acrobatic thing. Yes. What song are you like... They need to never sing that song again. Mine is I'm telling you I'm not going. Because they all do the point. And you to the left, and you to the center, and you to the right. You're going to love me. Yeah. It's like almost as though they went through a Xerox machine right. with that interpretation. There have been many um, sanitized versions of I Dreamed a Dream from Les yeah. Miserables, yeah. which, which really needs to be retired. I, I would agree with that. And um, and in the 90s, a whole new world from Aladdin was huge. Everywhere. Huge. Yeah, there was a lot of that going on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, were you as delighted and uh, intrigued as I was when Miss America welcomed back Miss uh, Vanessa Williams and sort of apologized? And this was a couple of years ago yeah. and made her a judge and like they made it all good. Yeah, I thought it was delicious. Yeah, I did. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think it was. I think it was. I mean, obviously, it was a ratings ploy for them. I mean, sure. Um, and the ratings did spike because of that. Yeah. Um, so they weren't stupid about it. Right. I think it was very classy of Vanessa to actually agree to it. I mean, and go know, with it. Yeah. And like, I mean, for, for years, I mean, she would not talk about yeah. it. She had nothing to do with it. She was pretty angry. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I, I think, I think it was good. It was, it was a good thing. I mean, if you look back at that, uh, period where she was dethroned. Yes. You know, it, remember it, it well, it certainly was it, of its time. I mean, of course it was going to happen. Right. I, mean, I think the pageant could have withstood some nude art photos of her would have been okay. But yeah, the fact that they were sort of bondage and raunchy and, you know, uh, 
pretty explicit. I think they just felt like I mean, it almost killed Al Marks, you know, who was the head of the pageant. Yeah, it, was, it nearly put him in an early grave. Really put him in. I mean, he did. He quit like not far after that. Wow. And I don't think it was any accident that the winner the year after was a Mormon. Yeah, it was from yeah. Miss Utah. I remember yeah. this. And I remember Suzette Charles was the runner-up, and I liked her. Yeah. But I love Vanessa. She yeah. was amazing. Yeah, and arguably really the most famous Miss America. Oh yeah, and I still remember the headline on the penthouse. Do you? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh God, God, she's, she's nude. nude. Yeah. And George Burns, mm-hmm. who's George Burns? Yes. Wow, Vanessa. Um, what do you think of the Miss USA, Miss Universe uh, organization pageant program in relation to Miss America pageant? Well, I mean, now that it's not in Trump's hands, it's, it's in better shape. I mean, yeah. it really got pretty sleazy. I mean, it's like Miss Hooters under him. I know, it's so gross. Yeah, but, um, you know, the history of, of Miss USA and Miss Universe is interesting because, you know, it was formed because Catalina Swimwear was a sponsor of Miss, Miss America. And then right. Yolanda Betsby, who won in 1950 or 51 said, I'm not wearing the swimsuit, it's unflattering. And they said, no, you are, we're the sponsor. And she said, no, I'm not. And so they said, fine, we'll go, we're going to form her, our own patch. I love that story, so I had no idea. Yeah, and so they formed Miss USA slash Miss Universe, and that's how that all started. And what the first rule was, no marimbas. No, no <laughs> nurse talks. No talent. No, no talent. talent. No, it was strictly, it was strictly a beauty pageant, and still is. But how fun is the evening gown competition? When they come mm-hmm. out in the pretty dresses, mm-hmm. and the soldiers sometimes have little... Yeah. Guns and they, I'm like, I love it. Well, it's the so best part about Miss Universe is the national costumes. I mean, oh, they yeah. They come out dressed as, like, you know, a, a herd of cattle or something. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's crazy. It's, they're all doing production of the Lion King on their body. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, but I tra- I've traveled a bit, and, like, in Puerto Rico, it's huge. Yeah. And one of the reasons, not one of the reasons, but one of the ramifications is if they were to get statehood, they would lose their representative in Miss Universe, which is kind of a big deal. Uh, probably. I'm sure it's a deciding factor. Yeah. I'm sure for a lot of people, I was like, no, we'll, 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 we'll stay at territory or whatever we're called. <laughs> exactly. Um, how long did it take you to write the book? A year and a half. All right, cool. And this is your second novel. Yes. The previous one had Grace, title, Grace Kelly in the title. But Searching I, for Grace Kelly. Is there something about mid-century America that, that you just love, that you love to you know, research and get into? Oh, sure. Uh, because mid-century America, my officer was a lot wrong, right? right? If you were a person of color or a woman or gay or anything like that, it was a tough time. But there was a lot right about things in terms of society was more civil. Yeah. People dressed better. People had better manners. Uh, you know, people... They dressed up to go on the airplane. They, yeah, they dressed up to go on an airplane. Airplanes were nicer. I, can you imagine though, those early flights before yeah. people really knew yeah. if it would make it? And mm-hmm. what kind of a. It felt like a real act of courage, probably, to go on some of those flights early on. I, I don't, don't know, know, but you look at the photos, everybody's smoking and drinking, and like everybody's, a good time. everybody has enough leg room to like go to sleep. I and, know. Uh, it was, you know, but as opposed to the cattle herding we all go through now. Right. So, I don't know. I just, I just felt like the accoutrement of mid century. Um, you know, sort of, sort of the panache right. always appeals to me, and I love writing about it and the fashion and yeah. and the food and the movies and you know all of that stuff. Were you into Mad Men? Oh, I loved it. I mm-hmm. too. And I was, it was even as I was reading through your, mm-hmm. the notes and your, I was like, oh, I, this feels a little Mad Men-y. I, yeah. I miss it. I love yeah, it. I mean, I'd love to be able to go to one nightclub where there's a little candle with a lampshade and a torch singer in a silver dress singing yeah. Eartha Kit. Like, I mean, it would be great, but I don't think there's enough of us to sustain it right. you know, anywhere. Yeah. Kind of like in La La Land where it, 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 jazz is... Did you like La La Land? I did. I did, too. I enjoyed it. I did. I did. And now, you're out here in L.A. working on a coffee table book. I am. Uh, what kind of coffee table book? I am writing a coffee table book on Musso and Frank. Oh, the the restaurant, yeah, the on, restaurant yes. on Hollywood Boulevard. That's fantastic. Yes, it turns 100 in 2019. Wow. And I wrote a story for Los Angeles Magazine last year about Musso and Frank t- about to turn 100. And this coffee table publisher is doing this book. And they said, would you do our book? And I said, yes. So I'm here to finish up the research. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about that restaurant that surprised you? Wow. Um, that, I think the thing that most surprised me, and I think this speaks to why it has endured while the rest of them went away. Right. Um, the Brown Derby and Zeros and Chasens, and, um, is the fact that they never allowed photography. They never allowed paparazzi. They never allowed any of that. Interesting. So celebrities always clung to it because they knew they would never be bothered. Right. And 
in Hollywood, that was just a hard thing to do. If you wanted to be photographed in, in gossip columns, you knew where to go. But at sometimes you don't want to. Right. And you just want to go and you don't want to have makeup on and you want to be sitting in a booth and eat spaghetti and not have anybody bother you. And, right. and at Musso's, even today, you can still do that. I mean, Johnny Depp goes all the time. Drew Barrymore goes all the time. Like, the Rolling Stones come in once a month. Like, it's that kind of place. And, and there's just this unspoken... Even if you're not famous, there's this unspoken vibe that says, don't look over, don't pay attention, don't ogle, be cool. don't be cool about it. Like, yeah. you know, belong here. Well, what's interesting is about it is the neighborhood it's in now, and it's always been in, but it doesn't feel very celebrity-ish. It's not oh, Beverly yeah. Hills. I mean, some of the, the people that live more on the east side. In other words, the location doesn't say, I'm the, I'm the restaurant that's going to last. No, no. It's in a very tacky stretch of Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. I mean, and it's, you know, two blocks from Grohlman's Chinese Theater where right. everybody in a fanny pack is out there taking a selfie. So it's just, but I think it's unassuming. And, and the funny thing is you really don't get tourists inside Moussa and Frank. First of all, the price point's pretty high. Yeah. And second of all, it's, it's not like it's, there's a lot of signage or anything outside. I mean, yeah. you could easily walk by it and not know what it is. Right. The sign's on the top of the building. And, uh, but it's a destination spot. You've got to know where you're going and you want to go there. Yeah. And it's still going strong. It's still doing Absolutely. well. Absolutely. And uh, what I love about it is for those very reasons I write these books. I mean, you walk in there and it's 1955. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just feels like it's 1955. Now people aren't dressing well. Yeah. Um, some people, the old timers do, but you yeah. know, most people are dressed like slobs. Right. But that's about a modernity they can't really do much about. But but, you know, the waiters and the red jackets and the cocktails, and it's just fabulous. Um, what's the best thing on the menu that you like to get? Oh, wow. The sand dabs. The sand dabs. What are sand dabs? Sand dabs are, it's a seafood. It's like okay. a very, very thin, floundery, fluke kind of thing in this, like, cream sauce. Um, phenomenal. Frank Sinatra's favorite dish, by the way. Good to know. Mm-hmm. I've, I've eaten there... Maybe a couple of times, but the first time I went there, I was interviewing Charlize Theron. Mm-hmm. We had just gone bowling at Hollywood Star Lanes, which is no longer there. Mm-hmm. And then to do the actual part, more interview part for Movie yeah. Line, we what she suggested Musso and Frank. Oh, I loved Movie Line. Yeah, I, I, that was my thing. That was my mm-hmm. home for a long, long time. Oh, wow, God rest its soul. Yeah, it was a great magazine. Now, we, you and I both magazine has have a lot of magazines. I read Marie Claire on your list. Mm-hmm. I wrote, wrote freelance for them for quite a while. Did you know Susan Swimmer? Oh yes, of course I know Susan. Yeah, she was a guest on the pod, a good friend of mine. Oh my I gosh, did she's some a great of her, friend of mine. Yeah, I did some of my uh, her cover stories. Oh, like, remember great. they would do like. The challenges. The challenges. Yeah. Like I went horseback. I went to a horse thing with Rosaria Dawson. Right. And, um, oh, I wandered to a hospital with Misha Barton, which was that was a rough one. Yeah, I can imagine. But yeah, 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 yeah. So you yeah. were um, on staff there. Yes, I was the deputy editor there um, for two years, um, from two thousand and one to two thousand three. How have you experienced the changing technology in the magazine world? Because that used to be my bread and butter, freelancing mm-hmm. and stuff, and I. And it went away in yeah. terms of me. I mean, some of those magazines are still there, but not mine. Yeah. So how have you how have you managed, or have you evolved, or found ways with the uh, web? Or well, what I, should I have done? It's <laughs> my, <laughs> my question mark. I did the wrong thing. What did you do, and how should I, I correct course? Uh, I will tell you what I did, which yeah. is a couple like in uh, now about three years ago. Um, I saw the handwriting on the wall that print was dying and yeah. not going to come back. And so I thought I can't be, I mean, I'm not independently wealthy. And so I've got to figure this out. And, yeah. and unless I'm going to be eating cat food when I'm 75. So right. I thought, what can I do? So I, I, um, I started to lay the groundwork about a year ago for an exit. So I was freelancing and I still have my vanity fair contract, but uh, I kept that because I'm not stupid, but the, the I, I started to let a lot of it go and you know the stories were getting shorter and the payment was getting later and it was harder and harder to get assignments for obvious reasons so right and then then getting the money yes is like money, part of it it's awful the check chasing is just the worst yeah I mean I'm still I'm check chasing right now yeah you know, I have a, I have a, um, a magazine that owes me money that I they would not give me <laughs> but um, so I decided I went and networked and I live in Philadelphia and said okay I'm gonna find me a big corporate job and that's gonna be secure and that I can do and that will get me to the end and so I did and I networked and I found a job and now I am the director of communications at an executive search firm 
Interesting. Yeah, the headhunting firm that only does like big fancy C-suite people, and I do all their marketing communications. Redoing their website now. So you, you you write press releases. You oh yeah, speeches and all that. And it actually turned out to be much more interesting than I thought. I mean, that isn't why I took the job. I took right. the job for the security. But um, luckily, I, I work with amazing, lovely people. And the thing about it is that it's a nine to five job. Yeah, you know, it, it it allows you a life, and it allows me enough creative freedom to do this. And they've been very very supportive of the book and. And when I, I occasionally will take time off to do a Vanity Fair story and things, and they're very, very good about it. And so it all worked out. I have this sort of floor underneath me now. Yes. Oh, my insurance gosh. all the rest of it. Oh. And now, I, but so I still good. have enough of a creative life on the side. Yes. Um, to, to, you know, I'm doing this coffee table book. I'm working on a story now for, um, I'm working on one for The Hollywood Reporter, and I'm working on one for Departures. So. I've always tried to get into those airline magazines. I can never crack it. Departures is a... Isn't it one of... No. no Departures thinking... is a, um, uh, a American Express magazine. It's, okay. It only goes to high-end card holders. Oh, right on. Magazine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounded like, to me, yeah. one of the ones on the airlines, which I was yeah. trying to get into. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to, you know, Ryan uh, Gosling about Austin, Texas, yeah, exactly. or whatever it is. Right, yeah, right. but no, mm-hmm. it did never happen. But good for you. That's really cool. Yes, that's the plan. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you're going to be my new hero. I'm going to be like, okay, that's what I need to find there. All right, you picked some fun questions from the observation deck. Yes. Um, memorable pranks you've played or endured? I had a friend in um, all through high school and college. Unfortunately, he just died, but he, um, he, he was a great prankster. And when we were in freshman year in college... He, we had a class together, and he told the most unattractive girl in the class that I had a mad crush on her, and then she pulled me aside and let me down gently that she was involved. And it was very humiliating, and of course not true, and he thought it was hilarious. So in, in retaliation, I then the following week had invitations printed up for their engagement party and then put them in the Sunday paper of everybody on his block at five in the morning. Oh my goodness. And said, it's today at noon. Please come to our open house. So people started showing up at noon, like with bun cakes. <laughs> oh my God. Hilarious. How old were you? I was 18. Wow. Yeah. And what did he think of that? He thought it was hilarious. His mother, not so much. Now, but did you engage him to the same girl or? Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That girl. Yeah. I love that. The joke was that she's not, you can't have her. <laughs> exactly. You, exactly. Uh, so, was she mortified or was she... Okay? She didn't know anything about okay, it. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, which have you been more, the dumper or the dumpy? Oh, I'm always the dumpy. The yeah, dumpy. Yeah, it's not good. It's oh. not good, yeah. I've had a very good career and I, I've, I have wonderful friends and travel and everything, but my love life's a nuclear war zone. <laughs> so, I, I've never really been, that's the puzzle I've never really been able to figure out. Yeah. Know? No, I hear you. Mm. What would you like to do in a job that you haven't gotten to do yet? Uh, I would like to write a screenplay, is what I'd really like to do. Cool. Um, Have you thought about what it might well, be? Well, there's such a cliche, though, of magazine people, like, oh, I'm writing a screenplay. Like, it's just this thing, like, everybody does. And it's I okay. just, just do it. I just felt like, ugh, you know, am I any good at this? But I have a friend who pr- is a producer here in Hollywood, and she has a big, successful show on premium cable, and... She used to be my assistant at Mademoiselle. How humbling is that? Oh, my God. And now she's a big Hollywood producer. And so I, she's been encouraging me to do this. And I wrote some sample scenes for her just to see if I could do it. I know you could do it. Your, your yeah. dialogue in the book is so wonderful. So she has been encouraging me. We're working on something together. So we'll see what happens. Good. You know. Good luck with that. I hope that. That's yeah. awesome. Describe your most unfortunate haircut. Oh, gosh. Okay. So <laughs> in the 80s, it was all about the perm. Right. And I had this haystack of hair like Tina Turner in What's Love Got to Do With It. It was just awful. Right. And I had this bad Tom Selleck, you know, 80s mustache. The combination was just lethal, uh, which really upsets me today because back in those days, I wasn't out and I had the best body I, of my life and right. it completely went to waste because I just looked terrible. Because the the hair the was The hair like, was just a mess, yeah. It, well, I'm sure everyone was doing it, though. Uh, yeah. I'm sure yeah. you weren't alone. Oh, yeah. What does your family think of your success? Um, they're proud, I guess, but they're, I'm not sure they get it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I, not I that, I'm, that. You know, I'm not on the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, I've right. had, you know, reasonable success with the books. They sell decently. Um, right. But I, I just, you know... It's my mother is always the one with the backhanded compliment. You know, when I gave her a copy of the first novel, 
and she was reading it and, and she was at our, I have a beach house and she was on the porch and I came back with my sister-in-law from the beach and she said, well, I'm starting to read your book. And I said, oh, what do you think? And she's like, well, I'm waiting for something to happen. <laughs> I was like, wow. Ouch. Ouch. You yeah. know? And even with this book, she said, she finished it. She called me. She said, I love the book. And uh, I said, that's great. And she's like, it's so much better than your first book. And I was like, wow. You just can't help yourself. Yeah, you just have you to know? go the one extra So there's step. a lot of that. There's a lot of yeah. this sort of backhanded compliment going on. Um, I came out to my mother right around the time my first book came out. And because the character was gay, it was like the cat was out of the bat. Um, and I just, the only thing I remember her saying about it was kind of joking that they, they weren't, it wasn't going to be in the public library in our town. <laughs> I don't know if she ever read it. I know right. nothing about it except for that. Right. So yeah, there's yeah. that. Who were your teen crushes? Gosh. Um, well, famous or not famous? Um, either or. Famous, I usually think of like people on TV and stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had a big Sean Cassidy crush going and, yeah. you know, he was, he was pretty honky. And I had a, I watched a video of him once, uh-huh. like he was doing a concert and he had on this tight pants, tight yeah. pants and he took them off and there was another pair underneath. <laughs> it was kind of like, oh my God. You, you're asking right. yourself, can those pants get tighter? Right. Yes. Yeah, they because can. They can. They can. And, there was, and they, they were can. like camel toe, yeah. camel toe penis, yeah. I guess moose knuckle, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. But Sean, what's your favorite yeah. Sean Cassidy song? Um, hey, Deanie. Thank you. Boom. Uh-huh. Boom, boom. Yeah. yeah. Um, what did you get picked on for when you were a kid? Well, you know, I went to Catholic grammar school, which was sort of the ultimate expression of social Darwinism. Right. And, uh, you know, I was slight. I was feminine. I was artistic. And these are not good qualities in right. Catholic school. So it was rough, but I, I, I literally drew my way out of it um, in that I was a very good cartoonist and caricaturist um, from a very early age. And so I would draw characters for people and give them to them. Oh, how cool. So sort of when I was a kid, I kind of wanted to be a cartoonist or something. Yeah. I thought that was cool. Yeah, I was going to go to art school and then I won an essay contest in eighth grade and decided to become a writer. So, Have you ever thought of illustrating something that you wrote? Like even no, a children's I, book or anything I like that? I think I never developed it. You know yeah. what I mean? It's just it would all be very amateurish and embarrassing now. But that was how you bonded yeah. with people. yeah. Whenever I, when I was like in high school and I first went to like theme parks and they had those caricature people, mm-hmm. I always had to get one. I thought it was yeah. the coolest thing. Yeah, How do they do that? Yeah. It's an art. You know? It's an art. It's really cool. Have you ever written a fan letter? Yes. Yes. I wrote when I, I was at, um, and how my family didn't know I was gay when I was like eight. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I wrote, I used to, I was obsessed with Cher from the time I was seven. Right. My first album I ever bought, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves. Right. And so, you know, Sonny and Cher were on at 10 at night. I could never watch them. We didn't have DVR or anything back then. Of course not. So it was only in the summer I could watch it. And, uh, but I, I would write her all the time and I kept writing her and writing her and she would never write me back. And I was really getting annoyed. So I finally, I I was literally like 10 years old Okay. and I wrote her a letter and I said, you know what? (laughs) You're not writing back and I can't. I, you, really, you, I gave you, her the business. You let Cher have it. I let Cher have it. And then two weeks later, I get a postcard in the mail from her. Oh, my in God. her handwriting. I still have it. And it said, Dear Michael, sorry I didn't get your letters. Love, Cher. That's it. That's it. That's it. But it was, I it absolutely, was it was absolutely authentic. It was in her handwriting. And, um, and I, you know, I was then always forgiven. When you go back home, will you take a picture of that thing and yeah, send it back I to me? Will. And I will post it with the podcast. Yes. What was on the front of the card? A picture of her. Okay. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Okay, both sides we mm-hmm. need. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Have you ever met her? Yes. Yes. I met Cher in 1989 um, when she was on the If I Could Turn Back Time tour in Atlantic City. And so I went and met her. I, I was supposed to interview her and then we, we got was a mix-up and so it didn't happen and they felt bad. So I went backstage and met her. Um you know, which was, you know, it's great to meet your icons. Yeah, I, it, mm-hmm. it, sometimes. And yeah. she seemed like she would deliver. Yeah. Whereas yeah. there are other ones where you're yeah. like, it's better to yeah, just, exactly. you know, listen to Holiday and not get too <laughs> exactly. close. Exactly. Um, what's your favorite waste of time? Um, standing in the surf in at the beach. Where in the, where in, what beach I have a house in Ocean City, New Jersey. Oh, fun. Um, at the Jersey, at the fabulous Jersey Shore. And I share it with my brother. We, we co-own it. And, I uh, I love to stand in the water 
and just and zone out and think and I don't have my iPod in and I don't have anything I just stand there and I can stand there for two hours you see and it's just, almost meditative yeah it is almost meditative that's awesome know? but I think it's important to unplug from all this crazy. I think so you know yeah it is it's crazy yeah do you collect anything I collect coffee table books oh wow yeah which is a how hard, do you store them well that's a hard habit to have which I really need big built in bookshelves which I don't have but um it just started years ago and I just, you only I just, have one coffee table yeah usually. I know I know we rotate them in and out and yeah. I store some and then I get bored and bring others out and it's a good decorating tool and some of them are just really cool and well especially you're doing one now so it's yeah. nice to have yeah well this one's going on the actual coffee table <laughs> hey do you have much say when you do a coffee table book in the pictures and the design and stuff like that or is it like you give us the text and we're going to do what we want no I mean I have a, like a consultant's role yeah. I mean because of my magazine background I think there is some modicum of respect of sort of my experience in bringing that to the table yeah so they have asked and I, I have actually found some archival photos to going through the Muso archive for them and stuff like that but uh, basically no I won't have any say in the layout or anything but I I, I know the photographer and and I know the team. And I, yeah, I think they, they, you feel like you're yeah. in the I'm mix a in a good way. Yeah. Um, you said that they didn't allow a lot of pictures at Muso and Franks. Mm-hmm. Are, are, are there enough pictures to make the book? Do you no. know what I'm saying? The is that a problem? No. Did that bite yeah. them in the ass when it comes to this yes, project? Yes, it, it did bite them in the ass when it yeah. came to this, exactly. Uh, so there are some, but um, there are not enough. Yeah. And so basically they've hired an illustrator to illustrate some of this, which I think is a good, good move. That'll be really cool. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. What song makes you cry? Uh, Among My Souvenirs by Connie Francis, um, 1959. And I, there's a story with this and that when I was very young, like 11 or something, and came on the radio one day and my mother was making meatloaf and she started singing along with it. And, and if you've ever heard it, it's a very, not a, it's an obscure song, but um, it was a hit for her, but it was 70 years, 60 years ago. And... It's a beautiful song, and it's about a girl who's unpacking all her souvenirs from her failed love affair, and how she's devastated going through all of these, and this is all she has left. And it's tragic, you know, and very thrushy, and and there's a lot of, like, organ, you know, in the background. And for some reason, it really struck me, and I, um, and it became sort of this anthem for me, and after every breakup and everything, it was me and Connie Francis. You I know? love it. So it's just my sort of catharsis. And it became this odd, weird song between me and my mother because of it, which is an odd, very odd song to share with your mother. But, you know, these things sort of just happen. Yeah, you, know? you connected over it. Yeah. Um, on a random, sort of related note, in Hollywood they have this thing now called the Museum of Broken Relationships, <laughs> which I have not been to yet, but it's like, it's just... Everyday people's artifacts and, and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that displayed. I don't know. I haven't been yet, but wow. maybe they should pipe that song in. Maybe now. they should. Okay. Who's the most famous person you've ever been in an elevator with? Mike Tyson. That is so random. I never <laughs> would have thought that. <laughs> yeah. Where were you? Atlantic in Atlantic City. City. I mean, I was in Atlantic City in the late 80s, and Mike Tyson was just starting to become Mike yeah. Tyson. And um, Trump uh, was then sponsoring all those title fights. Right. And, um, and he was in a... He, I went to a press conference at Trump Plaza that they had for the fight, the big fight, and um, and then I was leaving, you know, to go back to the office to get in the elevator, and then I hear this squeaky, like, on the elevator! <laughs> it's like, okay. And in walks Mike Tyson. Right. And so it's just me and Mike Tyson in this elevator. Just you two of you. Yeah, just the two of us. And I, I thought it was so odd that he didn't have the big entourage or anything. I didn't know where he was going. So then he looks over, he's saying, how's it going? It's like, how's that ass? voice? Yeah. yeah. It was just, it was just random. And but he seemed all right. Yeah. He friendly. Was, he was a very friendly guy. And, um, it was just a weird encounter. Now, yeah. as somebody with a background in Atlantic City, you must have your own take on Trump and experiences and, and anything yeah. you want to share. Oh gosh. <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised this has turned out the way it has. I right. Mean, yeah. You know, he, Trump has always been, and even in those days, was brash, thought he knew everything, didn't have time for details, um, you know, didn't didn't suffer, you know, anybody who disagreed with him. You know, it, it's all, you know, you don't change your spots. And yeah. That's who he was. And, um, you know, when this all started, I mean, I didn't think he'd get as far as, obviously, he has, like anybody, but I, I, I understood 
his appeal and, and his way of doing things and why people reacted the way they did and in a way that I think a lot of people didn't. Yeah. You know? I, I was just thinking about Comey. The, 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 testi- the testimony was yesterday. I feel like Trump, if you interact with Trump on any level, you, you pay. Your life gets worse. I'm trying to think of people that might have interacted with him where their life got better. Yeah, I think that's... Was that sort of... Does that resonate with yeah. what you know about I mean, him? Certainly that's like, true in Atlantic City. Right, he, I mean, he stiffed know. people. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anybody who dealt with him in Atlantic City, you know, is screwed. So, yeah. It, you're either going to break even or get worse. Yeah. You're not going to improve. And right. you're probably not going to break even. No. No. Oh, no wonder he can't get people to work with him. Okay. If you could be the opposite sex for a day, what would you want to experience? Oh, I'd want to go shopping. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I've never done drag in my life, and, and uh, I, I just never had an interest in it. And But I always said that if I was ever going to do drag, it would have cost me a fortune, because I would want to be like Derber Kerr and The King and I. Like, yeah. I'd want to be the whole thing. <laughs> I want the hoop skirt. The, I want the, I'm going the whole way. You right. know what I mean? A tiara. It's, yeah. I mean, the whole nine yards. I mean, look, I'm a guy who writes about Miss America, for God's sake. And yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to do it halfway. I'm not going to be one of these tragic drag queens. So you'd want to go shopping super high-end. Yeah, super high-end, makeup artist. Julia Roberts, pretty woman montage. Exactly, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite perk of your job? That I get to meet um, really interesting people and that I get to stay in glamorous places and and indulge all of that. What I've... It's interesting you said that because my life as a writer and as a journalist, there have been times, not tons... But where I got to be in an environment that I could never have afforded on my own. Right. Um, and I get a taste of that. And it's really neat, but it's not my lifestyle. But it's a window in. And that's no, kind of neat. No, absolutely. I used to say, uh, I was once, I have a very vivid memory when I was at Marie Claire. And I was in a cab with Elizabeth Hummer, who was the design director. And we were on our way to Patrick de Marchelier was opening a gallery opening. And Diane von Furstenberg was co-hosting. And it was all very fancy. And you know, there was a lot of canapes and all that. And we were all dressed up and we, Elizabeth and I were in the back of the car and she's doing her makeup in the back of the taxi. And I said to her, do you enjoy this? Like, you know, is, is this like, and she said, oh, I love this, but you have to keep in mind that it's not real and that you get to play dress up. And that's what it is. And that's the part I've gotten to enjoy that. I'm glad that I got to play dress up. And I'm also glad that I got to really be cognizant and present in knowing that it was not real. Right. I didn't get swept up in it. Right. You didn't think, like, how can I stay here? Or, yeah. Or that it was important to stay there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that this somehow that made me something as a person. Yeah. You know, because it doesn't. When you were doing magazine stuff, were you, you, it seemed like you did a lot of cool features, investigative research things. Did you do many profiles? Or what was sort of your beat in terms yeah, of... Yeah, I was a, a, one of those journeymen people. Yeah. I, did a, I did politics and true crime and sports and fashion and... Um, you know, a celebrity and a little bit of everything. Cause I was just interested in a lot of different yeah. things. And so, you know, I've, I've done Sandra Bullock and, and, um, I had a very memorable day with Christina Aguilera that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Oh my God. What was it like? Oh my gosh. We were doing a fashion shoot with her in the Bahamas and I had to, I produced it. So we went down with the fashion team and the, the, this was during her dirty period. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. And so we were going to make her over four different designers gave us clothes and makeup instructions and everything to make her over. It was Tommy Hilfiger and Cavalli and Anna Sui and somebody else. And so we go down there, we set it all up in this ballroom at the Atlantis where she was performing and the shoot is called for 10 AM. So we're all there. She doesn't show up. She showed up at five. Oh my God. And when she shows up to five, she comes in, she's in a bathrobe and pin curls and she is, she goes into her dressing room, slams the door, she won't come out. So the publicist tells me she hasn't spoken a word since the day before. She had a big fight with whatever hooligan she was dating at the time. Right. And so, you know, I went to her entourage of hangers on and I said, look, where is this guy? And they said, he's by the pool. And I said, you've got to go get him and don't come back without him. And then, uh, we were trying to figure out how we were going to save the shoot. So we... Losing light. We ordered a full bar 
and cranked music and he came back and we made him go apologize to her and so they macked on each other for five minutes and then we said okay we're ready to go and then we shot we didn't end till midnight it was a, it was a very long exhausting day oh my god and then she, of course she didn't want her hair changed and that was of course was the whole point of yeah the, and then it was just all that there was a lot of push and pull and you know that I don't miss yeah because the the problem is like you don't know which ones are going to be the nightmare. You kind of, you, you know rumors and stuff. Right. Like, it doesn't surprise me about her. Yeah. But, you know, when you accept assignments or whatever, you don't always know. No, you don't. Who's you know, going to be. Had, I mean, and, and, you know, you just, I did the women from The View back in the day. And Vera wow. walks in. She's amazing. Star Jones walked in. She was a nightmare. Yeah. And then um, I did Sandra Bullock. And I met her at the Chateau Marmont. And she came in alone. Yeah. She drove herself. You know, she has her hair in a ponytail. Yeah. She jeans on. She sits there. She's high on Sandy. Like, she could not have She's been lovelier. She's the coolest. Not yeah. have been lovelier. Yeah. And more I've real done her and self I mean, the best. Terrific. You know what yeah. I mean? So, it just, you never know. You never know. Yeah. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your favorite interview? Is there somebody that you got to interview that you loved? Yes. Yes. But this is be weird. But you'll get it. Because, okay. you know. Um, you, we all have, I think, these weird people who are semi-famous or anything, and who are our people. And right. nobody else, you're like, what? Who don't care, who don't even know who they are, but you're obsessed with them? Right. And growing up, I was obsessed with Shelley Hack, the Charlie Perkins Yes. And... The, the angel. Yeah, the angel. I loved her. And so when I did a story for Vanity Fair on the Barbizon Hotel for Women... Right. Which later inspired my novel... And Ford models used to stash their models at the Barbizon, and Shelley Hack was... It was it's a hotel in New York. Yes. Well, right. now it's a condo, but yes, right. it was a hotel in New York. Right. On the Upper East Side. And I thought, I bet you Shelley Hack stayed here. And so this was going to be my only chance to interview Shelley Hack. And so I... I mean, Shelley Hack's retired. It yeah. took me a while to find her. I finally find her, and I get somebody who knows her. And then I get the email back saying, yes, yeah, she'll meet you in Santa Monica. So... I went to a coffee shop in Santa Monica, and I'm telling you, like you, I have interviewed some very famous people. Right. And I have never been more nervous in my life. Just ever. Um, I mean, I could interview Vladimir Putin. I wouldn't be as nervous as I was interviewing right. Shelley Hack. And she walked in, and I was just jello. And I, we sat down, and I just was blabbering on. It was, just, and she was very good about it, and. I think she was a little frightened by the middle because I just knew way too much about right. her. She doesn't probably hear you were my favorite angel very <laughs> exactly. much. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or like, yeah, I remember you in Death Car on the freeway. Right. You know, or, you know, that kind of thing. So remember the year that she was the new angel? Mm-hmm. That was the year that the camel toe pants were really hot. Mm-hmm. And they did that shoot with the three of them mm-hmm. where it was like, mm-hmm. whoa. Yeah. That's a lot. That's, that's a, a lot. herd of camel yes. toes. It was a herd. It was. Yeah. It, it was, was a great time. It was. It was a great time. But how was she? She was, she could not have been lovelier. And I always say that my regret is that I did not get a photo taken with her. I've never gotten a photo. I've never had a photo taken with any of these famous people that I've interviewed. Because I just, I personally, I just don't think it's, it's a professional. So I yeah. just don't do it. But um, but she, I should have made the exception for her because yeah. she was such an icon to me. And, you know, I mean, you just, I just should have done it. She's so wonderful in that Charlie commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you ever been starstruck? It's kind of a related question. Yes. I was starstruck by her, uh, certainly the most, you know, because, um, you know, and of course, in, you know, meeting Cher was intim- is intimidating. And, yeah. Um, and then I was, I, I worked for a charity when I was at Marie Claire, we worked for a charity uh, one day, and, and it was run by Jessica Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. Um, and so we were all there, and then Jerry walked in. Yeah. And, you know, we weren't expecting him. And, of course, he just walks in, like... Are you at Jessica's home. house? Or yeah, we were at, at the, the offices of the yeah. charity. And um, it was called Baby Buggy, and it, it, it sort of took all these fine baby stuff from Upper East Side wives, and you cleaned them and scrubbed them, and then you gave them to poor people. So it was an odd charity because, you know, you're giving Burberry strollers to like, you know, single moms in Harlem, but you know, okay. So Jerry walked in and, and, um, you know, just introduced himself around and everything. And I think I was starstruck there because I just wasn't prepared. Right. You know, I'm going to have a Brillo pad and suddenly this guy walks up to you and it's like, hey, you know, it's like, like, he's aging well too. Yes. Yeah. He is a great guy. Very nice guy. He was, he was very, very lovely. I love it. What was your lowest point professionally? Uh, I got fired from Marie Claire, actually, in 2003. and I, Those fuckers. Yes, and I did not see it coming. And I, 
even from when I was young. You know, I was always the good student and the, right. you know, the good boy and all of that. I and, get it. You know, um, which is, of course, part of the gay DNA thing. Yeah. And uh, so when I got fired, I just had never been fired and I didn't see it coming at all. And I just got clocked. And it was really awful. It was just awful because, um, you know, I'm in New York, I'm tossed down on the street and I've got to make a living and I haven't been looking for a job because I right. didn't realize I was going to need to. And so I, you know, I took freelance, I took any and all freelance work. I mean, my portfolio from, from that year is hilarious because I wrote stories for worth. I wrote a story on the 50 most powerful black women in America for essence I did a story on how to get enough sleep for your wedding for brides. Yeah. I wrote how to get back into your fitness goals for fitness. Like, it was just eclectic. If you, if you were willing to let me write, I wrote it. Yeah. And uh, it's re- really funny if you look at it, but it was a rough year. I ended up freelance copy editing for Glamour at, like, 2 in the morning. And it was just, that was a rough, rough period. And I think it made me more savvy. And yeah, what got you out of it? Yeah. When did you feel like you? Uh, what ha- what got me out of it is that a year later, I ended up going back to Hearst, ironically, um, because the editor who fired me then ended up firing like eight other people or ten other people, and then they started to figure out, hold it, maybe she's the problem. Right. And she was fired, and I think Hearst felt bad about it, and so they recruited me back to work at Cosmopolitan's. Oh right. Cosmopolitan. Okay. I wrote for them as well. Yeah. Um, we probably know a lot of the same people. I'm sure we do. Did she give you a reason when she fired you? Yeah, she just said that, you know, I wasn't, um, managing the features department. Well, I mean, some of it, I was exposed. I mean, I, in her defense, I, I had, I had not, I had some exposure in terms of there were a couple things that I just had mismanaged and, um, but not to the degree that I, I feel I deserve to be fired. Right. I certainly deserve to be talked to and say, look, you know, you've got to get your shit together. But not to the point where it was dismissible. But I think, you know, the recession was starting to come in then and she was just really, you know, she was looking for people to blame. And so she fired me. And when I walked out the door, I said, you know what? I'm the first. I'm not going to be the last. I can see how this is going. And I wasn't. Right. I mean, it was a hurricane that went through there. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, um, And that was the beginning when the mag- you could kind of start to see where things were going yeah. and all of that yeah. stuff. So. Yeah. No, I've been there. What was your? What was one of your favorite features to immerse yourself in? This world that you had no idea about, you know. Even in terms of a story. A story, yeah. Oh gosh, wow. Um, you know, I love these retrospectives. I mean, this is why I write what I write. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so, being able to talk to people who are of a certain age, and um, you know, one of the one of my favorite stories I ever wrote was never published. And what was it? I wrote a story on the El Morocco nightclub in New York. And went and talked to all of these people who had gone there and had worked there and cigarette girls. And, I mean, it was such a fabulous, fabulous place. And um, I wrote it for Vanity Fair in 2000. And, oh my God, what year was that? Um, I'm going to say 2010. And, um, and then they laid it out and we had amazing photos. It was just terrific. And then they, they, there wasn't enough room. And so they... They cut it, and then they were going to run it, and it kept getting bumped and bumped, and then that's what happens, you know, if you have that. Yeah. I'm sure you've had it in your career where your story gets bumped and bumped, and then it just takes on too much dust and then dies, right. you know? And so, um, but that was such a great, really fun what, story. What was the era of that club? Was it... The heyday of the El Morocco was really from the 30s to, like, I would say, to the early 60s. Right, you know? okay. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. What's it like to write for Vanity Fair? I never wrote for them, and but that always seemed like the gold standard of <laughs> yeah. kind of um, what I was doing. It's, it's a, I, I can't complain at all. I mean, they've been very, very good to me, and I have a great editor there named David Friend, and it's, uh, you know, it's glamorous and all of that. And so there's that part of it. I mean, when you call somebody and say, I'm calling from Vanity Fair, it matters. And right. that's, that's a fun thing to do. Have you been to their parties? Uh, I have been to, I've never been to the Oscar party. Yeah. Uh, because that's a tough ticket. I'm hoping to go maybe this year, um, because the, now it'll be almost, it's more than 10 years I've been writing for them. So maybe I've earned my stripes enough, but I've certainly been to parties in New York and, you know, Graydon owns the monkey bar. And so I've been to places there and I was just at one at the Waverly Inn they threw for Nick Hilton and. Um, it, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it's great. It's, it's a very heady experience, yeah. you know? 
And Nick Graydon is very intimidating. We used to talk about being intimidated. I mean, I've only actually met him once. Um, when I signed my contract as a contributing editor a couple of years ago, three years ago, I, you know, I went in to meet, you know, I'd written for them, but I'd never actually met him. Yeah. And so there's this sort of like process where you just go in and kiss the ring, so to speak. And, right. But he's an intimidating person. Yeah, so, I would yeah. think so. Yeah. I've never, I've, I've never even had a contract offered or been in that kind of realm, mm-hmm. but that means that they... That you will do a certain amount for them over yeah, a year. Yeah, supposed and, to do so many stories, right. you know, In the terms of the contract. What was the story you did for them that got the most sort of buzz and like you know because there's always letters to yes. people and movie options. Yes. And, you know what I mean? Like yeah. those stories really yeah. get a lot of uh, eyeballs. I think certainly the Barbizon Hotel story was, yeah. which surprised me. That should be a series. Yeah, yeah, it should be. Yeah, but um, yeah, that was. I think. For some reason, it, it just because of the women who had stayed there, yeah. because it was such a rite of passage um, among generations and and things like that, and I got an enormous attention for that story, and of course generated the novel. So, it, it that was surprising, you know. I, it was it was very very surprising. That's awesome. The of attention I got. Do you do the thing that I do when you see reporters in movies gauge how accurate things are? I just saw a play last night where a writer was getting a magazine assignment in London for £4,000. I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, and then, it, then it, later on it fell through. During the, during the show it fell through, and I was like, well, then, okay, I, I believe that part. But, like, I noticed in Spotlight the way Rachel McAdams took notes. Mm-hmm. She fucking wrote a lot of yeah. notes. Sometimes they, like, tap, tap, they yeah. don't do it. And I'm like, you got to record that shit. Yeah, like, what are you doing? I know. Do you notice things like I, that in I movies? Do. Yeah. Of course. Or when Carrie Bradshaw got $4 a word or whatever. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, Carrie Bradshaw is ridiculous. But Carrie Bradshaw, <laughs> in that apartment, in New York, in, in the Upper East Side, and and then all buying all the shoes and everything, and she writes a column once a week. Yeah, and that's all. And she was never freelancing. Like I never saw her do anything else. No. And I was like, what? Exactly. Are you out of your mind? Yeah. Like, you never see her on the phone going. No, they said that the check would be there yeah, this it, week. I, yeah. No. No. It's yeah. all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's that, nice to talk to somebody that's yeah. been through that world because mm-hmm. I sometimes get kind of down on myself or when I'm in a career place and and I was thinking, no, I I I was uh what was i trying to say i made it to a certain point into a certain thing and then it's just that field isn't there well no you can't yeah. hold yourself responsible for the fact yeah. that the industry has collapsed you yeah know what I mean? like what are, you, what are you gonna do i mean it is what it is yeah um you know i don't think and i you know i've been teaching for years and now i i've actually stopped because i i can't in good conscience start to t- teach a skill that you know it's like being a blacksmith and henry ford's put- puttering down the street like, <laughs> exactly. it's just like this is not the way it goes i know and i thought about teaching and i thought the thing i could teach the best isn't a thing anymore nothing anymore right so um yeah anyway well a couple more questions why do you love miss america <sighs> it's a great question actually it's funny nobody's ever asked me that um i love miss america because it's kitschy and it's uniquely American because it's egalitarian. You know, if you're a girl and you want to go in and you want to try to do it, you can walk into any local pageant and enter and try it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's just, there's something endearing about it. There's something innocent and, and sort of, um, you know, sort of very nerdy about it and sort of antiquated and people say, well, isn't it past its prime? Well, yes, of course it's past its prime. Of, yeah. Of course it is. That's, that's part of the charm. Part of the charm of it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, must we always toss everything in the name of modernity? Like, no. What I love about it is like, you can look at a, a just shots from a Miss America pageant and not know if it's 19... 19- 74, yeah. 1958. Yeah. That, you know, like, they, the, and they all sort of look 40. Yeah. But exactly. that's part of the charm. Yeah. And I'm very invested as I'm watching yes. it with Who Wins, and then I forget about it right after. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, last question. Why do you write? Wow. Um, I write because I'm just compelled to. I always have been. I've been writing since I was four. Like, I, my mother saved all those kooky crayon stories I wrote. And... Um, I've always had a wild imagination and I've always had a, a need to express it. And so, um, even, even when I was a kid, I was making up stories and, and you know, when, when you're a gay boy, you can't have dolls. 
And so I used to collect Hot Wheel cars and pretend they were dolls. And so I, I gave them all personalities. I had Hot and Wheels and I didn't have dolls. Yeah. I wanted to play with my sister's Barbies and I yeah. knew that it was not okay. Yeah. You knew it wasn't okay. And I had old brothers, so it wasn't yeah. an option. So, oh, well, they were um, in the house. Mine yeah. were in the house. I knew they were in, never mind, I knew where they were. And I still remember this one Barbie dress <laughs> that was the black one with the taffeta at the bottom or that crinkly <laughs> stuff in the row. Anyway. Yeah. And I, yeah. So carry on. I'm sorry. So yeah. And then I just, you know, I've always been attracted to storytelling and luckily, you know, won an essay contest in eighth grade and thought I can do this. Like I can do this. And in fact, when I went to college and I said to my dad, he said, well, what are you majoring? And I said, I'm majoring in journalism. He's like, no, you need to major in computer science. And this was the advantage I had of being born to a working class family because they weren't paying for it. And so I said, well, are you paying for it? And he said, no. And I said, well, then you don't really get to decide. So he said, you'll never get a job. And I said, yeah, I will. I'm good at this. And, wow. Um, I did. That's awesome. So, there you go. There you go. How can people find out more about more about your book? Or do you, are you on Twitter? Or do you have website, I am on Twitter. Stuff? I'm on Twitter at Callahan Writes. Okay. Uh, and I, you know, I'm pretty active okay. um, on Twitter. And you can find me on Facebook, of course. And you can find me... Um, through Houghton Mifflin and their website. Awesome. Okay. Um, I have one more question. Where do you fantasize about somebody reading your book? I like to imagine people on planes or like laughing in a public place or like I I sometimes would think about that. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that the ultimate, which I've never had and and I don't know if you've had, but, uh, you know, is to, is to actually find somebody reading your book. Yeah. Is to actually pass them on the street and say, and see them. But I've never had it. But I've had I've, that once. Yeah, I've never had in it. In an airport. Yeah, yeah. I've never had it. But yeah, I mean, my book is, is not, you know, it's not supposed to be great literature. It's it's an airplane read. It's a beach read. It's it's that's it's the book you're supposed to take to escape. Right. You know, I mean, that's what it's supposed to be. So well, mission accomplished. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. It's been so fun talking to you. Thank you, Dennis. Thank uh, you. Check out the book and follow Michael on Twitter. And thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again to Michael Callahan for making time on his trip to L.A. to talk to me about his book. Check it out. The Night She Won Miss America, available everywhere fine books are sold. And by that, I mean that one store that we all get everything from. Anyway, um, so this happened. Uh, A few weeks ago, I mentioned my side hustle idea of doing a life cast kind of thing, like a podcast for people having a great occasion in their life that they want to remember. So um, I found out a week or so ago that I got into this new program that the Actors Fund is doing. It's a Becoming an Entrepreneur course. It's like 54 hours of training and workshops, and it's free. You just have to pay for a a materials charge of like 50 bucks. And we had our first session yesterday, and it's like 15 people that you had to apply. You had to write a, you know, a, a statement and answer a bunch of questions. And it was like a you know, they, they only had a limited number of slots. Anyway, I got one. So I had my first session yesterday. There's like 15 people in there. Really cool. Everyone has different ideas. And we're learning all about entrepreneurship. First of all, the first thing I had to learn was how to spell entrepreneur. Because it's in a lot of email chains now. And the last E comes before the U. You might not think it does, but it does. That's the, that's the big holdup. But now I can spell. So I've already learned something is my point. But um, I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm, I love the Actors Fund. They do so many good things for people that are in the, the entertainment business. Um, it's not just for actors. So if you're in L.A. or New York or anywhere uh, and you're, like, looking for help with insurance or uh, how to find a day job or whatever, you want to leave the business or whatever, they are an amazing resource. I can't say enough good things about them. So anyway, I'll keep you updated on my workshop. I do love to learn and go to class and take notes. I'm really into the school thing all of a sudden. Anyway, that's happening and I'm excited about it. Thanks for listening. If you're in LA, come to the Mismatch Game next weekend, July 21st and 23rd. Not the, not the Saturday, the 22nd. No show on Saturday. Um, we'd love to see you and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! Bye.